everyone. My name is Peter McMillan and I'm the Executive Officer at NT Shelter. We're recording today from the land of the Larrakia people and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and to any other First Nations people who may be watching on. This episode of Sharing the Couch involves another uh, really impressive advocate, a campaigner and changemaker from the housing and homelessness sector. Kate Colvin is currently the National Spokesperson for the Everybody's Home Campaign and Director of Policy and Communications at the Council of Homeless Persons in Victoria. With over 20 years experience in leadership and advocacy roles in the community sector, Kate has led successful campaigns on social housing and housing affordability, youth justice and accessible transport. She's an experienced policy leader, manager and communicator with a track record of delivering policy outcomes and driving innovation and growth within organisations. Kate graduated from the University of Melbourne with a bachelor's degree in commerce, economics, and then went on to complete a graduate diploma in women's studies at the University of Melbourne. Kate will also be known to many of you uh, from her appearances on Filthy Rich and Homeless on SBS as the voice and the, uh, I guess, the face of the Everybody's Home campaign. She's appeared at the National Press Club to launch the Everybody's Home uh, campaign and also frequently appears in national conversations around housing and homelessness. Kate, we're very happy to have you on the program. Welcome to Sharing the Couch. Oh, hi, and I'm, I'm, I'm wrapped to be here. And can I just say I'm joining from Wurundjeri country and um, all the way diagonally down the other uh, corner of Australia and um, pay my respects to elders past and present as well. Terrific. And Kate, um, really looking forward to this conversation. You know, I guess we're both advocates trying to achieve change in mm. housing and, and homelessness, and we'll no doubt compare some notes along along the way. But, but before we do, I'd really like to... Um, uh, find out a little bit more about uh, about you in terms of having left school. You, you've gone to University of Melbourne, obviously a very exciting campus there. You've done a bachelor's degree, as I said, in, in commerce, economics. I noticed also you got involved with the students' union there, um, making, I guess, campus a little bit safer for women. Um, do you feel that you've always had a, a passion in leading and um, speaking out uh, about things, I guess, that need to change? Oh, that's a great question, Peter. I mean, when I start, I started uni when I was 17 and I, you know, um, to be honest, when I was 17, I thought I wanted to be like an investment banker or something. <laughs> and that's why I started a commerce degree. And um, look, that's proved enormously useful because um, I studied quite a lot of economics and, of course, we use that a lot in housing policy to understand how housing markets work. But I went overseas after two years at uni and kind of travelled around and had, a, I, I suppose, a number of pennies dropped over that period. And, um, you know, I grew up a bit and realised that the world wasn't as fair and, you know, as I'd sort of been led to believe growing up in a middle-class kind of environment. And I came back and progressively got involved in student politics. So I was involved in the um, campaigns for education to be free because I started university right when HECS um, came in. And so, you know, we were, you know, there was the sort of national movement um, that I wasn't a leader in, but I was kind of involved in, in, in trying to make that um, unsuccessfully, unfortunately, 
And then I was, then I became the women's officer at Melbourne Uni. So, um, uh, so we were involved, you know, we were doing a number of, um, we had a number of campaigns. I mean, Safety on Campus was one, but there was kind of broader issues like that weren't necessarily just related to being students, but um, broader issues about women's rights that we were involved with, like, um, you know, access to abortion, all sorts of things like that, which is yeah. you know, sort of funny thinking about how that's kind of back in the news now. Mm. And um, and so then I I suppose I did really develop, the more I got involved, the more passionate about it I became. And I, um, but also, I also found that the, you know, um, for anyone who's been involved in student politics, like the sort of factional tensions and um, groupings, like it's, you know, a whole world of, um, of you know, um, conflict, I guess. And so at that point, I, it became clear to me that I didn't want to continue in that sort of world. A lot of people in student politics move into um, political parties and kind of continue um, and, you know, sort of contemporaries of mine at Melbourne Uni, um, you know, are now senators and MPs and what have you in the federal parliament, some in state parliament. And um, but so I decided I wanted to go into advocacy. So my first job after I left university was at um, Oxfam Australia. Back then it was called Community Aid Abroad. And I worked in the advocacy team um, looking at a lot of issues like, um, for example, Australian investment into hydropower in the Mekong region was something I worked on um, quite a lot. And then um, broader issues about basic rights and that sort of possibly where, you know, I sort of first started to get interested in housing as an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I noticed that um, you went over to Thailand for a couple of years as well in that Mekong region, uh, looking at, um, just reading off your resume here about protecting the livelihoods of uh, communities in that region from the impacts of internationally funded hydropower projects. I guess seeing that firsthand must also have cemented uh, in you a real sense of, um, of the of the need, I guess, to work with communities to develop a voice and to look at impacts, whether it be environmental or socioeconomic as well, it would have been a good fit for the work that you've been doing in Oxfam. Yeah, look, it was, um, so I went to work for one of Oxfam's partners in um, Thailand and it was an interesting campaign because um, on the ground in, in the Mekong region, which the Mekong is the big river that flows um, through Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, um, and 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 China at the top, and um, it's a really important river for the livelihoods of communities in that area. But it it does have a lot of hydropower dams on the tributaries and on the main um, river, which uh, affect the um, uh, well-being of the river and of the people that rely on the food that it generates. And there's all of these like international players. So part of the reason I was there was because Australia is quite a big investor in that. Um, and so we were based in um, Thailand, but sort of working back with colleagues in Australia to try and um, affect that. Um, what was it like as an Australian working in that area of advocacy in a, in a foreign country? How did that, did you get opposition um, to that? And, and how would, I guess, the, the environment of being in a country like Thailand be in terms of 
uh, organising uh, communications policy and advocacy? Were they was there a, was there a, a welcoming or a hostile view of that over there? Uh, no, mostly welcoming, but it's a really complex environment which I discovered more about the longer I was there. So there's tensions between. Um, you know, historical tensions between Thailand, Cambodia, um, Thailand, Vietnam, like, and so um, some of the, um, because the organisation I worked for was Thai, some of the relationships were um, coloured by those historical tensions. But um, I guess as foreigners, um, so we're working in a Thai organisation, so the leaders of the organisation were Thai, but there was um, a couple of from the UK, Canada and Australia there, and our role was to um, raise questions, not provide the answers, so I suppose that's one of the ways that we manage that tension of kind of not being there to tell people what needs to happen, but to try and, um, you know, raise questions about whether or not the impacts on local communities have been considered mm. so um so yeah we sort of did a lot of um that questioning but I did I remember um something that really influenced me was being in a um, remote community and there was um uh, a, a dams are usually built in high land in, in high ground and in um, Cambodia, that um, mountainous land is occupied often by ethnic minority groups who experience a lot of discrimination within Cambodia. And um, you know, talking to this woman, it was through double translation. So initially I felt right. like I just misunderstood. Yeah. And she was saying that she much prefers working with the um, white NGO staff who are based in Cambodia than with the local Cambodians because of the racism and I was like what like really yeah. <laughs> like surely that's like wrong you know because I I suppose when I was at Oxfam the idea was always that the the in-country staff are you know the sort of voice that you really listen to and and I realized um sort of when I unpacked that with a colleague that what was happening, and in many ways it was familiar to me from dialogue in Australia about um, Aboriginal community members, is that the kind of narratives that were being told about these ethnic minorities were very um, kind of akin to the kind of um, racist kind of um, narratives that are told about remote Indigenous communities, about, you know, um, you know, they sort of openly use words about their primitive kind of lifestyle and, um, uh, um, um, and there's, you know, sort of really gendered stuff as well because those um, this particular ethnic minority have quite different ideas about women's sexuality and, you know, in a very patriarchal society that was considered quite outrageous that young women might be sexually active. Like there's just sort of all of these dynamics that contributed to this community just being considered like their land rights was sort of didn't really matter because they weren't really properly citizens, um, partly because they weren't um, from the mainstream ethnic community in Cambodia. And so that difference was used to sort of just kind of strike them out. So their land had just been taken basically and their rights were considered 
that must have been yeah that must have been um, really quite confronting and I guess um, challenging and and no doubt you would have gone through a whole range of emotions with that as well surprise and shock and disbelief mm. maybe and anger a whole range of different things but what an experience to have and you've come back from there and I know you've had a number of other great NGOs you've worked with you spent 12 years at VCOS and a couple of years at Jesuit Social Services I know both of those organizations really value high quality policy development and advocacy how did those roles impact I guess what you're doing these days in terms of the skill set and experiences that you've brought with you, I guess, when you went across to counsel homeless persons? Um, well, one of the things, I mean, just sort of reflecting on that experience in um, Thailand, that I, one of the reasons when I came back that I wanted to work for um, VCOS or an organisation like VCOS was because I, I realised that I could only go so far in terms of advocacy in a location where I wasn't a local person and I felt like I wanted to you know, really like that making Victoria more fair was kind of really um, something I, you know, had progressively realised I was really passionate about and that at, at VCOS I could do that as someone with a stake in that future, whereas when you're, um, you know, overseas, your your position as an um, advocate is compromised by the fact that you're not sort of directly don't have a stake in that future you're sort of an outsider so um sorry and the question was how that sort of translates back into CHP I mean I yeah. think one of the things that was um, amazing about the experience at VCOS was working across a whole range of policy issues and seeing um, the way that disadvantage manifests I suppose in different things so I did a lot of work in um, transport policy which of course really relates a lot to housing policy in that geospatial dimension because we were often looking at transport disadvantage in urban fringe communities and the impact that not having access to public transport has particularly on young people or other people who um, can't drive a car either for reasons of affordability or obviously young people you know are under 18 so they can't um, drive their own car and um, and how that then sort of you know um, impacts people's ability to access other opportunities. And so I see that, I suppose I bring that kind of geospatial kind of reference mm. into housing policy um, from, that, from that experience and also did a lot of work with um, disability, um, people with disabilities around the accessibility of public transport. And we had a lot of fun doing, um, I remember one time we... Um, you know, there was a group of people with disabilities who were really, like, passionate about making trams more accessible. Trams is probably something that's very particular to Melbourne, but, of course, they're very difficult to get onto um, and off. And um, uh, and um, so we um, we had a, a, a great protest where a whole bunch of people with wheelchairs, like, kind of wheeled in front of the tram and and um basically we sort of staged or we'd invited the media and staged a um uh um attempt to board the tram which of course was impossible you know wow How yeah. effective. that must have been really effective <laughs> it's like, well, the tram can't leave <laughs> until the people can get on you know <laughs> i can imagine people on collins street or whatever all gather around or little burke or wherever saying oh wow what's going on here this is interesting what i've yeah. seen this before yeah yeah what yeah, a commotion. 
Yeah. Yeah, you know, for sure. And I did want to ask you, I'll come back to that issue around, um, I guess, around advocacy and campaigns in just a minute. Um, but I guess um, in terms of what you consider to make a good uh, campaign, what are the key ingredients in that to be successful? What are essential ingredients? You know, as you think about the campaigns you've been involved with, you talked about some of the transport stuff. What are the key things that go into making a successful campaign to give yourself a reasonable likelihood of, of getting an outcome? I think one of the things that always stands out for me is that it has to be uh, something that connects a, a group of people. So I, I, I don't really see much success of campaigns that are just like one organisation just saying the thing. And I think often that's, um, uh, look, I see that a lot that, you know, it's like if we could just, if we just say the thing, if we write a report that says this needs to happen, you know, this, um, we need more housing because uh, it's um, without housing, people struggle to access employment or something. So that's a very true statement. And if we just say it, maybe we provide some evidence, um, the change will happen. But the thing is, I guess, is that, you know, governments are um, pulled in lots of different directions and um, they have this um, desire to get re-elected and, of course, you know, community sentiment about um, community views about what government priorities should be, you know, uh, determines whether or not they get re-elected. And so... Um, just doing what's um, technically the correct thing doesn't always win the day. Mm. And so I think, um, I mean, I think one of the things, and, you know, we're lucky in a country like Australia, you know, because we have got such a robust democracy and I think that when we um, can influence government, it's like really embracing and using that democratic process. So sort of thinking about the broader way that decisions are made, not just by ministers, but, you know, what's the role of like political parties mm. and the um, party processes as well as kind of cabinet processes in making decisions. And then where do we as citizens kind of fit into that? And where do we as NGOs fit into mm. like that broader um democracy and um, I suppose leadership with um, fellow citizens. So I I think um, where I see campaigns be more effective, it's by mobilising citizens, not always in like huge numbers, um, though campaigns that do, that can mobilise citizens in huge numbers are sort of most successful, but it's, you know, that's hard to do without like really big campaign infrastructure yeah. um, but I guess and I think the thing I find personally is that there's a real buzz of doing that like there's a real energy that's generated of of working with other people on a campaign that they're also really passionate about yeah um, and that's you know in housing policy and it's even because you know you've been interviewing a few different people I mean I think one of the things is, is sort of people get interviewed separately, but actually a lot of those people are all sort of working together. Like it's it's like we've worked together, do you know what I mean, to yeah. help um, bring this issue uh, forward into the um, into the public domain. 
just in terms of the public domain and and communications, I'm just curious, actually, having you know, listening to you go through that, when you're writing or speaking publicly about homelessness, or you're writing something, an opinion piece, who's your audience? You're trying to connect with the average family in the Australian community who's reading, or are you really thinking, well, I'm really wanting um, people in political parties who can actually make a difference to see this, who might read it? Because you're absolutely right. It's not good enough just to write a letter, no matter how good the statistics are and the evidence base, send it off to a minister and think things are going to change. It does just not how the process works. Um, and you do need to do a lot more than that. But I guess, who's your audience? And, and do we need the Australian public to get behind this as an issue, in your view? Yeah, that's a really great question. And the, the answer about who's the audience is complicated because it's all of those things at once. So it's, in my mind, the audience is the decision makers, but there's the, the audience goes through a pathway. So if we were just writing to the decision maker in a way that nobody saw, like a letter directly to them, I don't think it would be very influential. But if if we say that um, same content um, on a commercial radio station so that those middle Australia people that you were talking about, so that they hear it, then the politician feels anxious about what middle Australia is learning about and, and hearing about. Hmm. So it's not necessarily the case that the middle Australian who hears it on the radio then calls their MP and says, I heard Kate Coffin say blah, blah, and I'm really worried about that, although occasionally people do that, yeah. and it's great when they do. But um, I think it's, it's though that the, the minister, whoever is the minister, gets, a, you know, every morning... I don't know if they get a pile of papers anymore. They probably just get it as an email. But, like, you know, they get, like, a file of what all the clips for the day have been. So they see what's being discussed in the, on their issue in the media, and I think they're more attentive to that than what they get as a sort of set of letters from NGOs. Um, sure, And yes. so, in a way, the answer is... Um, the audience is Middle Australia, but really it's just that Middle Australia is the um, portal through which we talk to the politicians. And so then in terms of language, try and um, use kind of um, the sort of phrasing on or story about homelessness that is most that we think is most influential to the politicians at that time at that time. So you know, just Absolutely. to sort of show how that's changed. You know, when we were trying to talk to the coalition about homelessness, we'd talk about family and security and stability and opportunities for families to achieve prosperity and all of these ideas which are quite conservative co um, coalition um, narratives about how the world works and just sort of try and insert housing into that narrative mm. um now that we're talking to labor we talk more about access to employment opportunity um people you know being able to um if um or being able to grow the economy because 
uh, you know, if people have housing, then they can participate in work we, and we'll be able to address labour shortages. Like it's a sort of more jobs kind of um, equality yeah. argument. But even though it's labour, not so much always talking about equality because I think that sort of respond more to the ideas about opportunity. And, in yes. fact, I've myself found the way um, Albo talks about his public housing experience I think is quite interesting because he talks about it as an opportunity narrative and I think it's actually... I remember the first time I sort of heard that thinking, actually, I think that's more compelling than what we've been saying about in terms of particularly when just in the homelessness frame, when we talk about people who are most disadvantaged and missing out, you know, I think actually the, you know, just enabling people to have an ordinary life and get on and with life and work and all of these things some ways I think it's more compelling to people than um, the person who's really struggled, who often people can't identify with. That's right. That's absolutely fascinating. And I think um, Jacinda Ardern's talked about New Zealand having to do better on housing, what she referred to as housing the poor, uh, because she said it's a country that has the the prosperity and the empathy uh, to fix this. I guess mm-hmm. I'm curious a couple of things, and and this is probably a good lead into the Everybody's Home campaign and the work that you've been doing there in in creating this this community awareness and I guess movement to to end homelessness. Um, and I guess as part of that, we do see Australians, I guess, protesting from time to times about things like illegal uh, immigration or detention, I should say, community detention and other things. So people can get angry and they can get together. Mm. What's your sense about uh, Australia and uh, I guess the fact what Australians feel or how they feel about this issue of homelessness and whether it's an issue that they are angry about or it's an issue they're concerned about. I, I mean, you mentioned it is hard to relate sometimes to people who might be in that situation who haven't experienced homelessness before. What's your sense, I guess, of where we're at at the moment in those areas? Yeah, look, I think people are more um, worried about it than the politicians um, think. So, uh, and I think it makes people feel a sense of sort of things are not right with the world to go into their city or town and see people sleeping rough. I think that makes people think like, why, why does it, why do, why does that happen? Like surely there must be something that can be done. So I think there's actually enormous community support for, um, you know, providing assistance to people who are rough sleeping. Um, But at the same time, sort of, Competing things can be true at the same time. So I think um, I think one of the things, and there's some interesting research from the UK which shows this, is that people, um, despite that they feel like something needs to be done, they don't necessarily go the full length of thinking proper long-term housing should be provided because um, there, there's a bit of like, beggars can't be choosers kind of thinking about it as well. And I think often people think, um, you know, a roof over the head, a, a bed for the night, a, you know, in, um, you know, kind of constantly appalled, but like in Brisbane, you know, car park kind of blow up mattresses in a filthy car park for the night is considered like somehow 
yeah. in any way acceptable um, is because yeah is because people uh, I guess um, see rough sleepers as being um, uh, they don't necessarily identify as that could be me so it's like um, yeah so I think it's I think there's some risks in how we sort of talk about homelessness and I think just focusing on off sleepers can be um, a challenge because yeah. because people don't always leap to the housing part of it they leap to just yeah. accommodation temporary accommodation um, and they think often too that people who are rough sleeping are, are doing so because they've got um, all sorts of personal issues that are sort of choices that they've made about, you know, um, yeah. drinking or, or that kind of um, other sort of health problems that I suppose in a broader sense we would see as manifestations of disadvantage or, you know, consequences of, of trauma or other experiences that people have had. But mm. um, um, other people might just they see them. Um, appearance of someone yeah. and think oh they're um you know why do they look so disheveled then they're, they're not like sort of looking after themselves or, or something so it's yes. um uh but I think there's also enormous sympathy and uh, um for women and children fleeing violence and um there was some research that was done by I'm trying to remember the name of the group social ventures um, into attitudes about different um, ways of talking about homelessness and um, that revealed like a really significant amount of sympathy to the idea that, you know, women and children fleeing violence shouldn't be sleeping in their cars, there should be housing available. So, and I think in that sense, when we bring children into the picture, people can more clearly see why long-term housing is important and not just temporary accommodation. Absolutely, and you, you made that point really clear in in in, a, in some of your recent work. I know you did an opinion piece with the Sydney Morning Herald very recently. Um, that really the solution is not complicated. It's ha housing is is required. Although, like you point out, the views of people and the perceptions are often either misinformed or we don't uh, fully appreciate the circumstances and the complexities in people's lives that leads to homelessness. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a, it is a challenging area. Like in that article, you, you said that um, now that we've got an incoming government, an Albanese government that Albo, um, in terms of um, having a plan to fix the housing crisis, he should reach for the stars. I'm, I'm, it's quite a, quite a, um, it's quite a great, um, notion of going hard and, and going early uh, and reaching for the stars. What do you mean, I guess, in terms of reaching for the stars? Do you think there's some areas that maybe we're not being ambitious enough in, in addressing mm. the problem? Yeah, so the, the incoming government, Albanese government, is committed to build 20,000 social housing properties and 10,000 affordable housing properties over five years. But, you know, when you divide 30,000 by five, you get eight, no, six, sorry, 6,000. Don't ask me, my mass is lousy. <laughs> and then when you divide 6,000 yeah. by eight states and territories, and obviously you wouldn't necessarily divide it up equally, let's not get into a fight about how we'd divide it up, but even if you just divide it by eight, you know, like that's less than 1,000 properties a year. And then, like, you know, states like, I mean, there's enormous 
social housing need. I mean, 8,000 a year wouldn't even be enough in the NT, you know. I mean, sort of, um, yeah, 1,000 a year wouldn't be enough even in the NT. So um, what we need is, you know, a much bigger ambition around social housing than that. And I think one of the things we're talking about in Reaching for the Stars and sort of ending homelessness too is around income support. So, you know, provision of housing and provision of adequate income supports are kind of two sides of the one coin to make housing affordable. But, you know, when we had the coronavirus supplement being paid to people on income support, the level of rental stress was, um, you know, plummeted. It was like went from like 45% of people on CRA in rental stress down to 29% of people um, in rental stress. I mean, it's still, you know, quite a lot of people in rental stress, but it's a lot less. And, um, you know, of course, people um, also were like getting that dentist visit done, you know, buying, you know, warm jumpers for winter, like able to do all of these ordinary things that, you know, every Australian should be able to do, but are, are not able to do if they're on job seeker payment. So I guess, in terms of reaching for the stars, it's like what are the conditions that we need to end homelessness? So obviously enough housing um, so that everyone can have decent housing is part of that. And Australia is so far from that vision Um, and 20,000 social housing properties over five years is like it's just like such a small proportion of what's needed, you know. Um, So that's what we mean about doing a lot more. But then the other kind of piece which is in there, which we don't talk about quite as much but I think is quite important, is about the sort of broader reform that's needed to really end homelessness. So if you you sort out the housing and the income support, you'll deal with a lot of it. But there's also um, some more complex issues around the support people need if they're more... Um, you know, uh, have have health issues, have other kind of vulnerabilities like disability, they're fleeing domestic and family violence. Um, sometimes people do need support to manage that transition from homelessness back into housing or to even better to actually avoid homelessness, you know, um, if people can get support at the right time. And some people who, um, you know, have had a lot of issues and and challenges in their life, perhaps childhood neglect or, you know, um, might actually need support in a more ongoing way to kind of um, stay sustainably housed. And that's not something um, that there's any sort of national plan about. And I think anyone who's ever tried to navigate the health system, even from a, you know, position of strength of being educated and like you know um generally good at navigating bureaucracy or just uh, you know anyone who's tried to navigate aged care or health systems or whatever it's so hard it's so complicated and imagine if you're trying to do that when you're someone who is um you know hasn't the benefit of years and years of education um, um, you know, is mentally unwell and, and really struggling to concentrate on the, the task at hand. Like it's, of course, people need support to help with navigating that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, Kate, the other thing that's really interesting is that 
people who are entering the homelessness, uh, it's not a story of people always with complex needs. I mean, increasingly, mm. I'm sure you're seeing nationally the cohort of um, women, maybe uh, older women that are at risk of becoming homelessness, um, don't have the super accumulated superannuation earnings, um, might, might not, you know, have, have missed out, might not have a lot of um, income and assets. And educated people obviously as well and it's very easy i think for people to stereotype homelessness but there's there are a lot of australians out there and you and you point out about what's going on in regional new south wales as well where there's simply nowhere to rent mm -hmm. and even if people have um have can afford it often there's not even stock either by the way but that's 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 really creating a whole lot of um risk of homelessness in 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 a greater extent and right across the country. Is that what you're seeing through the work you're doing with the campaign and at Council of Homeless Persons as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like increasingly, you know, worried about it because we've been talking about this issue being, you know, a crisis for a long time and it has been. Um, but at the moment, it's it's actually way worse. Like the low vacancy rates, um, you know, down to 1% across Australia and in a lot of communities in regional areas half less than half of one percent and that just means like it for every rental property that comes up there's just this huge competition and um the vote most vulnerable um potential tenants always miss out in that competition so even people with jobs are competing and missing out and um so the the one with the most you know Often it's even like the best connections with the real estate agent. I spoke to a journalist, um, a radio journalist, just the other day who was saying he moved to a town and, you know, he, he couldn't get housing for um, weeks and um, eventually he was only able to get housing because the, the owner of the radio station called the real estate agent who he knew and got them to give him a property. So he's sort of then been able to sort of jump ahead of the competition in that way. So what then happens to the um, aged care worker who's, you know, part-time and on a pretty average income, they're not going to get a look in. And so as you say, it's not about people, that scenario is not about people with complex needs. Though in that kind of um, competition, the person who does have complex needs doesn't have a hope of getting a property. You know, if you turn up and you look a bit um, dishevelled or, or you know, you've got a disability or, you know, you're a single parent fleeing violence, I mean, there's, you know, they're not going to rent the property to you. No, no absolutely. Okay, I'm looking at that banner behind you, everybody's home. Uh, absolutely right in saying Australia's housing system is broken. We have a, uh, a new Labor government that has made some um, some commitments. Obviously, we're looking to see see more over time, and, and not a lot's been said about renters, for example. And, and I often talk, often remark that 50% of Territorians are renters up here, so we yeah, don't have that right. high level of home ownership. So a lot of work to be done. I guess how confident are you that we can end homelessness in Australia. You know, we, we, we're down the curve, aren't we? Some countries have made much greater progress in that, even countries that are less prosperous than us. Do you believe deep down we can end homelessness in Australia? Or I, I don't really want to be talking about this in 20, 30, 50 years. I won't be here in 50 years' time, but, you know, I don't want this to be going <laughs> on forever. I hope I'm here in 50 years' time. Let me do the math. <laughs> but, but I guess, you know, I'd like to think this can be solved and fixed. What do you, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I think we can. And I think, um, look, I think the last COVID, well, not the last, you know, the COVID pandemic and the sort of changes that happened at that time, even though those um, changes were generally unwound after the pandemic, but showed what can happen when we've got like a sort of flush of kind of community sentiment and actually showed how people do value strong government and, and you know, intervention that benefits the community. Um, and so I think it's, I think things things are, are changing. And I also think that the what we were just talking about, the rental market getting even tougher does signal um, a more significant change. You know, when these issues that we've been talking about for a long time that affect people who are the most um, disadvantaged start to affect people who are, um, you know, more middle income, then that changes the political dynamic of the issue. So I think, um, you know, what happened in Brisbane politically um, goes to show what happens when you ignore the um, issues faced by renters. So, you know, Greens talking up, um, you know, uh, um, in, in Brisbane, you know, a number of Greens took Liberal-held seats. I think that's quite phenomenal mm. because they were talking up what needs to happen to renters. And Brisbane's faced really deep, low, really low vacancy rates, massive increases in rents, really hard for younger people to find rentals they can afford, and not just younger people, but I think there was a, a real swell of political um, uh, response to the messaging about we've got to do something about housing. So um, I think we've got this exciting new parliament now. I'm in Labor, you know, taking power, but the, um, a lot of those independents have come in talking about that they want to do, um, they want to see movement on housing. So I think there's real opportunities in the current parliament, but I think there's also a lot of challenges. And I guess the biggest one is, you know, the government's committed to the stage three tax cuts, which basically then make um, spending on expensive priorities like housing really challenging. So um, it's, you know, it's, um, I, I can see a lot of opportunity, but I think it's, you know, it's not necessarily going to be um, easy, but I think it's also one of the things about everybody's home is, um, is that uh, national profile and but also it's not just the national profile what I mean by that is like it's everyone if if everyone's working together towards the same end and telling much the same story it doesn't have to be exactly the same but and it doesn't have to be necessarily under the everybody's home banner but you know the, the great work that you've been doing um, in the NT talking about the importance of providing housing and highlighting the issues around the challenges that um, renters face in the NT, I think just all builds this pressure for momentum, for change. And I feel like we're, you know, it does feel like there's still a long way to go, but if you compare where we're at now in terms of um, highlighting this issue and having MPs who are, who feel like they need to do something on this issue, compared to where we were four or five years ago, you can then see that a lot of progress has been made. And so then it's just 
how do we make these next steps um, um, actually achieve the change that we need? And I think um, sometimes when, um, you know, and this happened a little bit when Rudd was elected, sometimes when Labor governments are elected, people think, oh, we can take the foot off the pedal. But I think now's the time really to kind of really, you know, we've got to go hard until we win. Yeah. Because this is an opportunity, this parliament with all of these independents and what have you, this is an opportunity we won't necessarily get again. And I think now, you know, collectively it's a group of people and organisations who care about fixing housing issues. Um, now's the time to bring it home. I think that's absolutely right. And you mentioned the NT, Kate, one of the things that we're really uh, got in our sites is the review of the National Housing and Homelessness Agreement, which is due, I think, uh, for release by the Product Commission, a report to government later this mm -hmm. year, and that the current agreement expires in June next year. Um, we, in the Northern Territory, like in other states and territories, we simply don't have enough funding for homelessness services. Um, we'd obviously like to see more housing built um, to help end homelessness, but we do have a lot of need and um, we say to everybody who will listen, I guess, that um, the Territory receives 1.3% of that $1.6 billion a year, so it's around $20 million that we get um, with uh, 13,700 homeless people and um, other states, I won't mention this state because I always uh, call them out, unfortunately, who have uh, 9,000 homeless people are receiving um, uh, $170 million a year. And you can imagine what an extra $100, $150 million could do in a jurisdiction like the Dawn Territory with 12% of Australia's homelessness. Uh, it's not a case of taking money off a different state or territory, but I guess it's about trying to um, promote that message. And, and really, it's a campaign. I think we're going to have to embark on an uh, NT shelter with our stakeholders. And, and I think we could learn a lot from you and everybody's home around how to how to be more effective with getting a, a group of people around that issue and, and having an effective campaign. Um, but I think really, um, we want we need to see change in the territory because we don't think it a, a person who's, um, you know, homeless in the Northern Territory receives about $1,900 from the Australian government a year, whereas those in other states will get around $12,000. And um, I think that tells a story of um, whatever reason uh, that that agreement's not not fair and reasonable, at least in the case of Territorians and particularly Aboriginal Territorians who experience homelessness. So, you know, I think from today's conversation, um, you've made a lot of really um, good points around how to get other people um, working with you as part of a campaign uh, to achieve change and change is not to the detriment of others but lifts all boats and I guess if we can potentially work together or all with Homelessness Australia on this um, then I think that'd be something I look forward to doing. Fabulous well, look forward to and I think there's a just to add that issue around NT's um, just the reduction in the federal government's commitments around um, Indigenous housing in particular, you know, which used to be more than $500 million a year and in 2023-24 is budgeted to be zero. Um, and it's, you know, it's like that, I mean, we can, that money is really needed um, 
and needed even to be much bigger than it was. So we can't just sort of let the, you know, um, we need need those resources back, not just as more of a portion of the existing set of resources, but, you know, there needs to be a lot more resources into the National Housing and Homelessness Agreement and perhaps a separate schedule within it specifically for Indigenous housing. Yeah, for sure. Kate, it's been wonderful having you on the program. We didn't get to talk so much about uh, the uh, filthy rich and homeless uh, and and I guess some of the uh, next steps for everybody's home campaign but I know that um, there's opportunity to reset and reframe not to reset but I guess to build upon the great work that that campaign's been doing you've got a lot of supporters across Australia and um, and I think it's really important to engage with that and, and, and look at all opportunities to get better outcomes for, for people who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. It's great. I, I always get a lot of uh, joy seeing uh, uh, this uh, this work getting uh, discussed on PM or um, you know in the national media. I think it's extremely important. And thank you for the terrific work you and the team are doing at Council of Homeless Persons and with the Everybody's Home campaign. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Lovely to chat to you. Yes, uh, thanks. You've been uh, listening, watching uh, Kate Colvin, the uh, National Campaign Director and Manager of Policy for the Everybody's Home Campaign. Kate also is a Manager of Policy and Communications at Council of Homeless Persons in Victoria. Um, if you want to see other podcasts that we've done, please check out the NT Shelter YouTube channel. You can get that via your favourite search engine. And uh, if you want to, please hit subscribe so you don't miss out on episodes. We're releasing this and other episodes every fortnight on Thursday morning, so keep an eye out for that. And um, it's, I hope you're enjoying uh, these uh, conversations as much as I am. We're having a blast uh, talking to some pretty amazing people. So um, thanks for joining us today, and uh, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to episode five of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.